Today on Fit for Purpose, I'm joined by the Vice-Chancellor of Northampton University, Nick Petford. Nick tells me how he ended up running a university despite, as a young man, never initially planning to study a degree, and how his journey has informed the work Northampton is now doing to level up its communities and deliver real social impact. Nick, obviously, as VC for the University of Northampton, it's been a really tough time over the last few months. Tell us a little bit now about what Northampton's doing to get students back into learning, but also what you've been doing in terms of helping them bridge that missed learning that they might have had through obviously being away from university in many respects for the last few months. Yeah, it's been a tough time for all universities, really. But um, without sounding too overtly complacent, I think one of the advantages we had uh, here at Northampton when COVID struck was that uh, we've developed since about 2015 or 2016 something called active blended learning. Uh, We moved to a new campus in 2018 and we configured the entire campus around a blended hybrid model where we use IT, technology, digital uh, infrastructure. Uh, mixed with uh, more traditional learning face-to-face. So we were a kind of, I think, ahead of the curve when universities all of a sudden, not just in the UK, but around the world, had to go uh, digital, had to go online. So we, we had a good model that we could springboard from. Um, I think that's, that's stood us in good stead. One of the, and, and we're employing that right now as we speak. So we've got uh, several thousand new students have joined us this year and uh, they have face-to-face as well as online learning. Um, Where we have really thought long and hard though, Justine, is how we do more practical vocationally based subjects like nursing, like midwifery, fashion springs to mind actually, fashion, very tactile subject where you need to be uh, very hands-on from day one. How do we do that uh, in a remote distance uh, socially distanced setting uh, and I think we've, we, we've cracked that to some degree we're very proud of the hard work that the our academic colleagues and the estates team have done to allow that to happen so um, you know back to where I started without sounding overtly complacent I think at this point in time we're in a pretty good place as University of Northampton. And obviously you're a university that very much has focused on and, and in a way embodies the whole levelling up agenda. Uh, tell us a little bit about where that fits in for your institution, but also, I mean, let's talk a little bit as well about the work we're doing through the Social Mobility Pledge and this quite different approach you've had on on procurement and, and social value. Yeah, okay. So we, um, the, 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 the Social Mobility Pledge and the whole levelling up agenda is something which speaks volumes to us as a university. Um, we're only, uh, we only became a university in 2005, so that's, you know, not so long ago, 15 years. Uh, so we didn't deliberately have to follow the more traditional route that many older universities quite rightly um, have, 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 have adopted as part of their history. So we, we had a chance to do something a bit different. Um, and I think we've, we've done that. We aligned ourselves quite early on with the idea of social enterprise and social innovation. Uh, so what does that mean? Well, it means how do our students here at the university, who, by the way, come from um, quite challenging backgrounds, uh, the mission of the university is transforming lives, inspiring change. And we've had that mission since we started, more or less back in uh, as a university 15 years ago. And I think that that mission, we've stuck with it. And 
the world has come to us, Justine, on that transforming lives, inspiring change. It was a great innovation. And so that speaks to leveling up. It speaks to social innovation. It speaks to how, how we, we take uh, students from all backgrounds and all ages um, and really instill in them this notion of purpose. Um, you know, why do a degree in any, in any shape or form unless you can actually add social value back into society once you finish, once you've graduated? Um, that's the student base, but also how can we as a university, as a key central part of our local community, uh, business community, the third sector, et cetera, the health sector, how do we work with those partners to add social value, to maximize impact in the community in which the university is embedded and serves? And so those are the sorts of thoughts that have been swirling around and we've articulated that as a strategy. We see it through uh, the idea of social impact. And for us, and this is a key differentiator, I think, between us and other universities, Justine, is that you know, mm -hmm. we didn't rush about and set up a research centre to write you know, um, learned papers on all of this, as important as that is. We just dived in and did it. We just did things on the street. We went out there and started working with the local community on activity-based projects. And tell, us, so tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think well, so it's that, really yeah. interesting what you, what you ended up doing. Well, so, so a couple of examples is that we, um, we, we work very closely with, a, a logistic, with the logistics industry. And so part of the supply chain in logistics um, involves a, how, how do you get social mobility through a supply chain? Uh, and so we struck up a partnership with a local company called Goodwill Solutions. And their, their social mission is to employ only ex-offenders or more, more recently ex-military who've had potentially significant mental health issues. So we, we like that company so much, we invested in it as a university, our own money, didn't go to the government or anything, mm -hmm. we just put our own money into it. And we run a training center now through, um, through Goodwill Solutions. And it's won Queen's Award for Enterprise last year. Um, it's won awards from Barclays Bank, et cetera, because it's seen as a model for generating social impact and bluntly doing social good, but using business models. So you can um, uh, run a business which is uh, for profit, because uh, it has to make profit, because it's what you do with that profit, you plow it back in and improve the business. So it doesn't go to shareholders. There's a social enterprise model, community interest company in this case. But it really allows you to, 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 to put social good and business on the same spot on the diagram. Um, and I think that post-COVID, Justine, that idea of businesses working much more closely with the communities and adding, be seeing to be adding real value to communities is going to be an important point of the recovery post-COVID. And it's an important part of the levelling up agenda as well. I totally agree with that. And I think what was interesting looking at how your university had had worked things was when it came to doing the new Waterside campus. You know, for you, that was also a moment to be able to say, well, not only do we want to have great social impact by improving facilities for education on the doorstep, actually just even the act of getting it built and procured was an opportunity to also have this wider social impact, wasn't it? It does. And so that leads us into this idea of social procurement. So what on earth is that? Well, it's it's using the, the buying power of something like a university and our turnover it's about 150 million pounds a year-ish. If you look at the turnover of universities across the UK, it's in the billions. So we're always buying things, but how do we target that spend that will then allow um, job creation, 
that will allow better prospects for people who are perhaps unemployed? How do you get more people into training? How do you leverage the apprenticeship levy using your procurement power? Um, as a, it sounds a bit cheesy, Justin, but as a superpower, you know, how can we, how can we drive that into the local community? And but so, 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 an example would be buying food. You know, universities spend a lot of money on food, on catering. Let's buy local. Let's create local jobs uh, and keep the, as John Bird would say, who done, who's done some project, Lord Bird from the founder of the Big Issues, worked with us on some of this. Now let's keep the pound local. Let's get the social value in the pound. Keep it in the locality uh, and drive up growth. Uh, you know, drive up wages. Um, and, and drive jobs and or in this at this point in time with COVID maintain jobs you know as best we can do so all of that ultimately can involve procurement in a social way so it doesn't mean going for the lowest price necessarily when you're buying a good or service it means looking at price yes looking at cost but also looking at the social value the social good that your pounds will do when you buy something outside uh, the university. And I think it's potentially really powerful. It's your sense that other universities, in a way, particularly those that are very focused perhaps on levelling up more generally, that there's a real appetite to start investigating these kinds of changes a bit more across the higher education, maybe the further education, wider education sector. Definitely. I think that the scope for, for partnerships uh, in, this, in this model is intense. And universities are, by the way, this student hopefully doesn't sound critical of universities. They've done a brilliant job in the whole social procurement side anyway, through the, the local uh, regional collaborations and partnerships that they have. Um, but I think there's just more that could be done. So, for instance, um, I'm talking to you, Justin, looking out across uh, the River Nen to the Northampton General Hospital. So we should be working much more closely, perhaps in terms of joint procurement, with the big employers in towns, uh, so you drive, you, you actually get more, you leverage the social impact of your spend considerably by teaming up and partnering. There's a cricket club here, there's a football club, there's a rugby club, the Saints. You know, the next step in this journey is to make sure that where possible, because we won't always have overlying interests that map on exactly, but where possible, we do our purchasing uh, in a socially valuable way um, through bulk. Through, through size uh, and generate far more leverage opportunities than we would as a university buying uh, goods and services just on our own. I, so I, my sense is I think it can be really transformational, I think both within the sector and as you say, higher education overall spends billions. I think if that can be tilted to have a bigger social impact, then that will have a, a huge a huge effect I think over time but I think then the other point you mentioned that really does interest me as well is this more place-based approach the fact that actually you're not the only big institution around Northampton but if you could start to get more organized in a way or knit together your social procurement I think then you could really have a much more strategic look about how you could again tilt it to have a, a bigger local impact in a way that you know, potentially could really protect jobs and opportunity over the coming years, just at the time that we need it more. So I think it's exciting. And it's one of the reasons why we were so keen to work with you and really investigate this work through the pledge that you've been doing on social procurement. I think there are, you, you've, you've hit the nail on your head there, I think with, with the, the, the concepts of leadership. So how do you get these various organizations together? Because it won't happen unless somebody's taking the lead and talking to people. So that leadership piece, influence, you've mentioned, Justin, about how you, you need to influence people 
along the lines of there is real value in social value. You know, a lot of people have still haven't heard of the concept. Mm-hmm. So how do you influence people? Um, and then ultimately, we want impact, don't we? We want actually something to happen. Mm-hmm. I don't want to just to talk about this, you know, day in, day out. We want to see measurable differences uh, that show that the social procurement agenda that we're on uh, has improved people's lives. Um, and not just within the universities of students, but people who may never, ever think of going to university. You know, I think uh, that to me is part of the exciting um, challenge to, to us is to, is, to, is to get some of the naysayers, some of the critics of universities. And let's face it, there are quite a few out there, including some uh, quite significantly important MPs. So uh, how, how do we influence them in this agenda and make, make them see the value of universities, not just as, as centres for excellence in teaching and research and knowledge, but also as centres of excellence in driving up, uh, levelling up, the local communities outside their walls. And I think the project that we're on with the social mobility group and the whole notion of this idea of a purpose, a coalition as a brand is extremely powerful and will help immensely in that agenda. I think bringing all of you together can be massively powerful, not least because you all have different ideas and all the action plans have different focuses, but but they're all hugely powerful because actually... If you're going to crack social mobility and, and really drive leveling up, then it's a bit like a leaky bucket with tons of holes, you know, and mm-hmm. all of these different action plans are looking at different reasons why social mobility may not happen. But then going beyond that to say, well, actually, what are some of the solutions? And I think if there's one thing that we need right now in this country, it's more solutions at a grassroots level that people can just get on and start putting into practice. And that's what we're hoping to demonstrate, I think, through the Northampton work that we've got. Nick, what's your sense for students in a way? I mean, obviously you're gonna have loads uh, of young people arriving through your doors right now. Um, I mean, obviously there's a, there's a, a chance for higher education in particular to have a real impact over the coming years. And um, particularly with this slightly different cohort, obviously we had the grades um, challenge over the summer and a lot of young people were having to wait to see what would happen. But what's your sense about if you're like looking forward now that this this means for universities in terms of students going? Yeah, it's a good question, because, of course, we the um, the, uh, <clears throat> the I don't know how to choose my words carefully here. The the uh, the <laughs> over the summer when we had the uh, the level results coming out, in the way that they did, um, that potentially there's a lot of students who are going to go to university now who perhaps uh, wouldn't have got the grades they would have had if, if they'd been marked in the more traditional way. So, how will those how the, how those students what their experiences like at university? How that plays out? I think is an important um, an experiment's the wrong word, but it kind of is if you see what I mean, Justine. We're mm. going to two or three years down the line. Will, will those students have, have succeeded as well as they might have done otherwise, um, or will they have some somehow or hopefully not fallen by the wayside? So I think there's a really interesting question in how this current cohort of students in some universities, not all, by the way, some universities actually deal with the pressures that will be put upon them to succeed academically, in addition to what they're having to put up with now uh, in terms of some of the self-isolation through through COVID, et cetera, uh, on, in halls of residences. In a way, you almost had this for the first time variant of, of a mass contextualised admissions process, didn't you? where normally if you're contact, using contextualised admissions, it's, it's the university that decides, if you like, how it wants to take 
what are grades and then look at them in the wider context of how they were achieved, you know, what that means for, for the future potential of that young person. This year, in a way, you had teachers doing this wider assessment, perhaps, of what they felt that young person was going to get to. I think the key to success for higher education now is to really understand, if you like, how it needs to accommodate what will be a more diverse group of young people coming in um, than in the past. But in a way, you know, a lot of these will be overwhelming. The young people who got the potential to do a degree, um, it may be that the traditional perhaps some might say old-fashioned exam format wasn't format wasn't really a format that suited them but but actually that was distinct from whether or not they would thrive on a course you know maybe the fact they couldn't remember wholesale facts yeah. um ultimately and you know, maybe maybe the fact that they found a one-off sitting down to do an exam at one moment high pressure that didn't really work for them as people maybe that falls away and so they'll be able to demonstrate that it was a format that didn't didn't work for them, but actually the potential was always there behind it. There is. I mean, there's there's um, various schools of thought on this by people who are you know, far more versed in the, the educational experience of, of, of people than, than I certainly am. But it, from the theoretical side, but if you look at one one downside to what might happen, um, if you've got a, students who don't feel that they're prepared enough for the for the for some of the rigors of, of, of university education. That might impact on them in a, in a negative way in terms of increased mental health issues, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need to be absolutely crystal clear and, and, and alert to this possibility right now. There's no point waiting until the, some of these students may get into their third year uh, and then find that they've been struggling all, all along. We, we need to be able to have resource and have the ability to, to track uh, and put in place interventions now to help young people who bluntly have had a really tough time of it over the last Mm. months since COVID. Um, the flip side of that is that maybe these kids are just going to sail through um, and then you sort of realise, well, hang on a minute, why are we still hanging on to this sort of Victorian exam process, the sort of so-called A-level gold standard? Um, perhaps this is an opportunity to relook again at how we assess students uh, before they come to university in different ways. I mean, a lot of our, I say a lot, maybe 20 or 30% of the students who come to Northampton, uh, and it'd be the same with other um, universities who are similar to us is that they, they don't come through a traditional A-level route anyway. They come through access courses or they mm-hmm. come through the BTEC route, which is a different way to assess students. And those, they, 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 we don't see any particular difference in the, in, in the output of those students in terms of their final degree compared to their input, i.e. where they come from. Um, and so there are different models out there. Maybe this will be a watershed moment, Justin, and uh, the erosion of the... The, the A-level gold standard, and we move to a very different kind of um, assessment in future. I think it's a good challenge for, for higher education to genuinely ask itself how it would find that talent, if you like, in the absence of having what we've always had in the past, which is you know an A-level grade, which is arguably quite a narrow measure of, of some person. But I think the real opportunity is then to knit together the views of business in terms of how they already look, if you like, beyond this academic attainment um, element of a young person's progress to to look at this wider person. And I I think, as you say, for all the challenges, you know, there will be, you know, some steps forward that maybe we can take around university admissions that come out of what was a hugely problematic 
year for young people that was really tough for all of them I think who you know whatever your grades were and whichever university you were going to go to in the end yeah absolutely so as I said there's a it sounds like um, these students are guinea pigs in a great glass jar doing an experiment <laughs> but they kind of are you know uh, let's we shouldn't ignore the fact that this is un, unprecedented times and so we will be able to collect data uh, pretty much in real time as to how uh, this cohort have, have, have performed and um, and how they've been supported. I think that's the other mm -hmm. side of the equation, you know, making sure that, as I said previously, that we don't wait to the last minute before we put in any potential interventions that we start working with students right now uh, to, to allow them to be as successful as they possibly can be when they leave. And for Northampton, what are some of the steps that you're taking, given that, as you say, it is a, is a different September and October intake to the one we've maybe had in the past? It is. And the, the, the steps that we take, I mean, a lot of it will be uh, under the COVID restrictions. So social distancing. I mean, these things don't help necessarily at the outset in, in, in monitoring students' mental health, for example. So, uh, you know, somebody on, a, on the end of a telephone or on the end of a, on, on, on a computer screen uh, isn't quite the same, I don't think, as seeing somebody in the flesh. Uh, and how we put in interventions in, with, in terms of COVID and social distancing interventions that will help improve students' learning, again, is going to be a, a challenge for many universities. So some of the things that we've been doing is make sure that we do keep running the tutorial system, uh, the personal, assistant, personal tutorial systems, as well as other universities, uh, make sure that we're using data effectively to, to, to understand where students are, uh, and if they're feeling isolated or feeling lonely or bluntly feeling let down by the university, that we, we are on top of that uh, and aware to that and making sure that those interventions uh, are working properly. So I think using data to monitor uh, is going to be an important aspect of how we ensure the student experience at the highest possible quality and allowing the students to achieve their, their best results. And in a world where there is continued uncertainty over what will happen over the next few months and, and obviously... Um, no real certainty over when a vaccine's coming. So a sense of needing to learn how to be best in class in a world where we're, for the moment, living with COVID. One of the things that, uh, well, not just for students, but for societies in general, <coughs> is just the, this notion of resilience. Um, it's not obvious how you teach resilience, actually, but clearly it's a, it's a key trait um, uh, in, a, in a pandemic world. Uh, where you need to be able to maintain some level of purpose, some level of hope. If you think everything is hopeless and everything is lost, that is a bad place to be in for an individual and for society. I think there are answers out there. Um, the communication side is really, really important without being critical necessarily of the present government. I think some of the communications issues that they've had have, have, been, uh, have really highlighted how difficult it is to get... Um, positive messages out there, which are straightforward and non-confusing. And in a similar way, universities internally are up against some of those challenges. You know, how do we make sure that the students know where they are, know, know, know where they can go immediately to get help? Uh, things like timetabling, you know, making sure that they turn up for lectures on time and that the academic staff are where they need to be. All of these issues are, are, are taking place in universities now um, and not so straightforward to resolve. Hmm. So lots of challenges ahead, but from your perspective, Nick, I mean, obviously, you're now VC at the University of Northampton. What was your journey into a higher education sector? 
was this was this a route that you always wanted to go down or or are you one of those many VCs actually increasingly that's had you know, very different um, careers, if you like, before ending up running a university? Well, yeah, I did have a, 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 sort of a different trajectory into, into university than many people. I mean, I, I'm, I'm getting old now, Justin. <laughs> so um, sure so I, left, <laughs> yeah, I left school in 1977. So <clears throat> 1970s does progressively seem a different era now, um, a bygone age almost. And, you know, when I left school at 16, by the way, I didn't go on to do A-levels. I went to, uh, in, into a technical college to do uh, a refrigeration engineering course, City and Guilds. Um, I think only five or six percent of students actually went on to do uh, to, to do university degrees back then. Now it's it's clearly closer to to fifty percent. Um, so no, I had no uh, no ambition to go to university. My, my parents hadn't gone. I didn't, nobody in my family had gone to university. It was something which you know the group I was with didn't even discuss. It was just and when a, you and were you you were doing that course because it led to a, what a, a job locally. Yeah, well, I, I was um, I, I applied for for apprenticeships um, uh, in the I wanted to get into the heating and ventilating trade. <laughs> Don't ask me why. I just thought that was a, a good place to try and get a job. Um, there was nothing around actually. There was quite a strong recession in sort of the, 70, in the mid to late seventies, and so I ended up going, going to the second my, my second best option. I didn't want to go back into education really, um, uh, but I went to a, a technical college and did a, a, a city and gills. But even then, it was quite hard to get get into full time work in that in that business. So I ended up doing a whole raft of different sorts of jobs, working in retail. Um, I was a van driver for a couple of years for Liberties up in Regent Street, the, uh, mm-hmm. the department store. Um, and I was I was made redundant several times. And it was when I was actually. This is a true story. It sounds a bit uh, too dramatic to be true, but it is. I was signing on uh, in, and I, in the Dole Centre and I saw a sign saying, doing an access course at a university. Uh, this was um, uh, Southwark College in, in, well, in Southwark, in near Waterloo train station it was actually. Uh, I in, signed on to that course and then did um, uh, what's called an access course to higher education. And I was lucky enough to get a place at Goldsmiths um, reading geology. And I did geology because I wanted to get uh, stay in a vocational area. Uh, I wanted to work for a, on an oil rig, basically, <laughs> um, uh, because that was there was good money in that. And so that that's how I got into higher education. But as, as I as I experienced university, I realised there's much much more to it than just learning things. Um, and I really liked the environment, the the whole aspect of university life and what it was about. And in particular, I got very involved, interested in research in my undergraduate times. So that led me to do a PhD. From a PhD, I got some research fellowships. Uh, and then from that, I got into the uh, whole academic side of, of university life and you know, really never looked back from there on. Amazing. And now, obviously, um, heading up Northampton. Um, if, you, if you sort of look back, what would you say almost the biggest challenges you had to overcome? You know, the moments when actually it could have gone in a different direction where, where would you sort of point to key times when you've had to almost dig deep and, and push on anyway? I think for, for in the, the Northampton story in particular was when we, were, um, we decided to build a new campus. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a, a big step for the whole university, for the, for the university community and for the town as well, actually, town and the county of Northamptonshire. Um, a big project. It was aligned to um, uh, the stars were aligned, actually, for that project. I think it'd be very difficult to do it right now. 
But the uh, the coalition government were in, they, they were introducing these new uh, uh, local enterprise partnerships. And Northampton Town Centre, where we are now, was designated as an enterprise zone. So that, that freed up a lot of planning constraints uh, and it meant that it was an area of focus for redevelopment. Um, but some of the issues that we had to deal with around the whole planning consent, wading through just the bureaucracy to build a, a university was extraordinary. I mean, I think at one stage we were dealing with about 37 different um, uh, partners, mm -hmm. uh, of partners uh, advisedly, um, uh, involving uh, everyone from, from utilities companies through to highways, uh, through to the, all of the different planning authorities. And it, and the environment agency, all the rest of it, and it became virtually almost overwhelming. And, you know, there were points in the time where the whole project just could have come crashing down, you know, and we were sort of thinking, why are we doing this? You know, we could just stay where we are uh, and let life sort of move on around us. But, uh, but we, we, we dug our heels in at times of, uh, at times of uh, stress, if you like, because we had faith in the project. And I think that's a key thing, Justin, if you really do believe in something uh, and want it to happen and want it to succeed, uh, and you follow that sort of passion, follow that, that sort of compass, um, it allows you to achieve amazing things. And I think what we've done here at the Waterside, and I, I don't, I don't not talking about myself here, I'm talking about all of the staff who were involved, some of them very, very cynical to begin with, you know, what on earth is all this about? Getting people on board uh, is a huge, tremendous effort. Um, but I think it, it's paid off. And on the back of that, developing our active blended learning model that put us in good stead when, you know, mm -hmm. this out of the blue, this pan pandemic struck has all ultimately made sense for us. It is a really interesting journey. And also this sense of um, just going back to basics when you hit problems, which is why were we doing any of this in the first place? And why does it matter? And, and that being a good way to help you help you kind of keep going, even when a lot of other things tell you not to. It's certainly something I think that a lot of people will be able to relate to. Um, just as we finish off what's been a brilliant podcast, if you were giving advice to a younger Nick, I'm fascinated to know what you say to this, actually. If you were giving advice to a much younger Nick Petford all those years ago now, with the journey that you've had and everything that you've learned, Nick, I mean, what, what do you think you'd say and what, what advice would you give? I think I'd probably focus on three things which I think are important to all of us as, in, as individuals um, and also important to organisations like universities or oil companies or, or, or whatever. Um, and, you know, I hadn't really articulated it that well when I was younger, but I think if you can just stop and ask yourself three things, you know, um, where you come from as an individual, you know, what's your background, what's your personal history, you know, what, what, what are you, what's your value set? Um, then ask yourself, you know, basically, who are you, you know? What, what do you believe in? Uh, and then finally, what are the things that you stand for? You know, what are you going to go to the wall for? Um, I couldn't have answered those questions back then. I had a vague sense uh, of, of some of them. I certainly knew where I came from, but what I stood for, well, I wasn't really quite sure. Now I think I'm much more um, uh, uh, resilient in terms of being able to answer those questions. And I think as a university, we can answer that as well. And I think if you can't answer those questions, you're going to be slightly adrift uh, as an individual or as an organisation. I think that's brilliant advice. Effectively, it's about saying, what's your purpose? And being able to answer why. And I think whether you're a person or an, or an organisation, or I guess, you know, government, local authority, whatever, 
if you can't say fundamentally what what are we what are we here for then the danger is you get blown around by every single event that happens because you you've got no no kind of building block to go back to and and i i thoroughly agree with that um i think i'm very like you nick i'm not sure whether i would have been able to answer those questions when i was much younger but i think in a way they were the answers were always there i possibly just hadn't really had enough life experience necessarily to frame them if you like for for, for me and obviously for me it's always very much been around how can you allow people to make the most of their talent and their potential, whoever they are and wherever they are. And in my case, it was about how can I help that journey for somebody after me be easier maybe than the one that I had. And I think, you know, what, what you said is really powerful in a way because it demonstrates that you're in a role now that, you know, if, if somebody at that City and Guilds course had been told you'd end up doing, they probably would have found that hard to fathom. And yet, actually, it turned out you absolutely were the kind of person that could become a VC. And, it, and it's a really good reminder that um, the danger is you look at somebody and it's just a rear view mirror on where they've come from. And, and it can be very different to where they've got the potential to go through go to in, in the future nick it's been absolutely brilliant having you on the podcast um thanks so much for doing that but also the work on the social mobility pledge um and the report and responsible procurement we're really looking forward to getting it launched so many many thanks and looking forward to continue working campaigning with you on social mobility in the coming months thank you justin thank you Nick's journey is a really empowering one to hear, especially now with the economy facing real challenges. Leaving education in a recession, like Nick did, can be tough, and being made redundant as Nick was can really knock you. But his journey shows that they might be parts of your story, but they're not the end of it. And for the work the University of Northampton is now doing on procurement and social impact, that can have a much wider impact if we can get that approach adopted more widely across higher education. It all shows that for universities, levelling up is about much more than just widening access and participation. There's a much broader strategy that can be pursued when driving social mobility and social impact is at the heart of the institution's agenda, as it is for Northampton. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fit for Purpose. If you enjoyed it, please give us a rating and share with your friends, family and colleagues. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes.